Good morning. This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. A cathedral for the city of Douglas and reflections on 50 years as a priest. This morning, the spotlight is well and truly on Monsignor John Divine, senior Roman Catholic priest on the island and parish priest of the now Cathedral Church of St Mary of the Isle here in Douglas. And it seems appropriate for us to start with music from the priests, three Roman Catholic priests from the Diocese of Down and Connor in Northern Ireland. This is King of Kings, a hymn not only sung but written by the priests themselves.
Priests and King of Kings. On Friday morning, it was announced that another piece of history has been made on the island, as Pope Francis has granted cathedral status to the Church of St Mary of the Isle here in Douglas. The church will be a co-cathedral to the Metropolitan Cathedral of Christ the King in Liverpool city centre. Co-cathedrals are very rare in the Catholic Church, and this will be the first Catholic co-cathedral in the British Isles. For the full story on how this has been possible, we welcome St Mary's Parish Priest, Monsignor John Devine. Well, the story started over a year ago when I was approached by some of the officers of the Douglas Borough Council, where I serve as chaplain to the mayor. And it was shortly after the late Queen Elizabeth II for her Platinum Jubilee nominated Douglas as a city. The capital of the the Isle of Man was made a city. And they said, every city has a cathedral. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a cathedral? You know, the Church of England already has a cathedral on the island in Peel. How about St Mary's? Could St Mary's ever become a cathedral in Douglas? my immediate reaction was, well, we've already got a cathedral in Liverpool because we're part of the Liverpool Archdiocese. But then I went and did a bit of um, exploring and research and I discovered there's a precedent in the worldwide Catholic Church of co-cathedrals. And that often occurs when you have two separate dioceses being amalgamated and each one has its own cathedral and so they keep them. Or where... A diocese spans two distinct civil jurisdictions. Well, then there can be a case made for having more than one cathedral, a principal cathedral, but a co-cathedral as well. So armed with that, I, I, I wrote to the archbishop and suggested the idea to him. And the more I talked about it, the more I realized what a great thing it would be for the Isle of Man itself but also for the Catholic Church in the Isle of Man. Because, in a sense, it's seen as part of the Liverpool Archdiocese as some kind of distant satellite, an offshoot, if you like, of of Liverpool. Whereas, in fact, if you look at the history of the island, it's got a very ancient history. It has a um, a parliament, Tinwald, which is the oldest continuously existing parliament in the world. It's over a thousand years old, Tinwald. But there's an amazing faith tradition on the island, which goes back to the fifth century and St. Patrick and um, a disciple of St. Patrick called St. Macald, who was a very early bishop in the Isle of Man. So bolstered up by these arguments, as I say, I approached the archbishop and he agreed to make a petition to the Vatican because it's it's in the Pope's, Uh, keeping really to to name cathedrals. So we had to make quite a persuasive case and we listed all the things that some people don't realise about the Isle of Man, how it is a separate place, how it began, well it it was originally independent but then in early centuries it it was ruled by the kings of Norway and subsequently by the kings of Scotland and it was only latterly about four or five hundred years ago that it came under the protection, if you like, of the the British crown, but it's never been part of the United Kingdom. And the the monarch is not the king or queen of the island, but the monarch is the Lord of Man. We're not part of the United Kingdom. We never have been. So we approached 
the Dicastery for Bishops, which is the appropriate department in Rome. And we thought, well, what's going to happen? I kept it sort of fairly secret because I didn't want our people to be disappointed if it was refused. So and they then eventually came back to us and asked for more details. So that was a good sign because they'd, they'd taken the bait, as it were. And then they wanted to know amazing details. We had to do a, a completely thorough survey of the church with photographic evidence inside and outside. Uh, we employed a drone to do a survey of the building and another drone inside it. And we had to state where exactly the bishop's seat was going to be because cathedral is, is derived, the word cathedral is derived from, the, from the, the name for the bishop's seat, which is a cathedra, right? And so a cathedral is where the bishop of a diocese has his seat. So we provided all that information and then waited patiently. And eventually the archbishop received a letter from the apostolic nuncio in London, who is effectively the Holy See's ambassador to the UK, informing us that Pope Francis had granted the request. So that's brilliant news. And um, what's really appropriate is that we're announcing it at the weekend when we have for the first time uh, the annual civic service of the, the former borough and now the city of Douglas being held in St Mary's Church. But from henceforward, the, the, the Church of St Mary of the Isle will be known as the Cathedral Church of St Mary of the Isle. And then the strapline will be the co-cathedral of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Liverpool. This could be interpreted, this good news could be interpreted as bad news for ecumenism on the island because we have very good relations with the other Christian churches, which my predecessors over the years have painstakingly built up with the leaders of the other Christian denominations. But we have the support of those church leaders. The Bishop of um, Soder and Man, which is the ancient Anglican diocese in the Isle of Man, he actually wrote a letter of support to go with our submission to the Vatican, to say that it actually strengthened the partnership between our churches and between the two cathedrals, between the cathedral, the ancient cathedral in Peel and the now new cathedral of St Mary's in Douglas. The other thing might be that it could be interpreted as, as somehow the Isle of Man declaring UDI, as it were, from the rest of the diocese. But actually, it should have the opposite effect because it's having the bishop's throne permanently positioned within the Church of St Mary's gives a very clear signal that the Archbishop of Liverpool is the Archbishop of the Isle of Man as well. But perhaps even more important, it'll give a very strong message to the rest of the Archdiocese that the Isle of Man is, is a valued and significant part of our diocese and brings its own rich inheritance of, of faith with it.
Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might. Words of prayer from the Mass, translated into Manx and set to music by Annie Kissack and sung by her choir, Kirjin Kujak. It's been a special summer for Monsignor John himself, as he reached a milestone in his own ministry, being ordained priest for 50 years. Let's join Monsignor John again, this time reflecting on those 50 years. It's gone very quickly, and it's been a very interesting journey. I could never have predicted on the morning of my ordination where life would take me, and I've had lots of adventures. Why did you want to become a priest? I came from very much a Catholic background in Liverpool, where it was considered a a legitimate aspiration in those days for any young Catholic to consider being a priest. And priests figured largely in my life when I was growing up. They were frequent visitors to, to my home. And so when we went to the junior seminary, as it was, the age of 11, 12, I think there were half a dozen of us from my year at St Edward's in Liverpool who took the same step. It was always envisaged that not everybody who went to a junior seminary would end up as a priest, but it was considered that, you know, you'd have that aspiration. And so it happened. I mean, I I don't believe in a God who intervenes very much. I think we find God in in circumstances, and I think it was circumstances perhaps that led me to be a priest. And I admired these men that they were priests. You see, if you want to do something, you're thinking of the positive reasons why. I mean, there's a downside to every decision. The men I saw as priests, and I mean, I was taught by some really good priests who were highly educated. One of them was Brendan Alger. These guys were all Cambridge graduates. They were smart. You know, we, we weren't herded into priesthood. They taught us how to think and how to be critical. And in the junior seminary, you didn't have any illusions about what a priest was really like because you knew them close up. You know, they weren't some sort of cardboard cutout ideal. If I had to design a way of training people for the priesthood today, I don't think I'd prescribe the way we did it. And indeed, that's not the way it happens anymore. So junior seminaries are boarding school education, and that is not the path we would follow. It was considered to be good for you to go away from home and all that. There was part of society, wider society, would accept that, whereas now they'd reject it. But one of the things it did, did teach you how to get on with people at close quarters. You learn how to survive. I can remember leaving the seminary ordained as a priest and... In some ways, I wasn't thinking beyond ordination. Ordination was coterminous with getting out of the seminary. (laughs) I mean, that was the goal. (laughs) So sticking the course, getting out of the seminary, I was just 25. And I went to to Skelmersdale, Newtown, and we'd been told, you know, that there there was a great need for priests and that. And to be honest, it was a bit of an anticlimax because I thought I'd be roundly applauded wherever I went. I met with largely indifference, really. (laughs) But I kind of got over that, and I realised that being a priest wasn't a matter of just being busy for busyness' sake, but what I'm convinced of now more and more, that it's about the relationships you form, it's about the people, and that takes time. It's not instant. The satisfaction, if you like, comes from actually relating to people and getting to know to people or learning the skill of reaching out to people without 
necessarily knowing them that well. So, for instance, a grieving family who you don't know, how do you relate to them and stuff like that and have to have the confidence to do that. I did eight years in Skelmersdale as a priest in the new town and the opportunity arose to, you know, to go to South America. I th- I, well, I thought it'd be a good adventure, really. I think in some ways when I went to South America, I kind of rejoined the human race. Going to live in a country, you know, is quite different from going on holiday. So first of all, you're mesmerised, you fall in love with the place, then you go through a phase of hating it, and then you kind of settle for the fact, well, it's different. And it's that appreciation as there's different ways of doing things. And that's what culture is. Culture is is the way we do things. Now, to be in in a place where they do things differently... I mean, that might sound sort of glib and simple, but it relativizes so much in your life. Now, the one continuity of going to South America was that, you know, I was a Catholic and there were Catholics there, but everything else was totally different. And also operating with a different language added an extra layer on that. I spent all these months highly intensive language training, like one-to-one which I did in Bolivia, actually, in Cochabamba, and then was assigned to Peru. And it takes a couple of years to get comfortable in the language when you're not thinking about it anymore. But I think probably some of my most effective work was when I, you know, struggling to learn how things worked. And there's a bit of a paradox here. So you get lost. Well, who do you ask? The kids on the street, you'd, you'd ask them. There's a sense of powerlessness, Right. And the story I often tell is that you'd, I think as a priest throughout, and that's even till now, the best work you do is you do without knowing it. And the stuff you think you're doing really good, you're probably messing up because your brain gets in the way. But I can remember they put me in charge of the confirmation program when I first went to this my first parish. There were massive numbers. There was a big secondary school, right? And this was in Chimbote, which was a really deprived, massive shanty town of half a million people. And there were some North American religious brothers ran this secondary school. Anyway, we had, our, we had the parish confirmation programme and we used the school on a Saturday morning. And there were like six classrooms full of these kids. And I was supposed to be coordinating the whole thing. And it was a nightmare. And I thought, this is a disaster. I was getting letters from home saying, we think you're doing wonderful work. And I'm thinking, I'm a fraud. I mean, I'm I'm hardly coping here. Fast forward nine years later, I was in a a totally different part of Peru. It was probably about 900 kilometres away from where I'd been with that confirmation programme. And it, it was a priest being ordained a new priest, a Peruvian priest. And this young priest came up to me and he says, you won't know me, he said, but I know you, he said. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, "Um, yeah, I was in your confirmation class in Chimbote. That was a week before I came home and I thought, well, it was a great way to come home, but it's always taught me, you know, Jesus in the gospel never manipulated people. Faith is a gift. If I'd been allowed to stay there, I'd still be there. Oh, yeah, I didn't have a choice about coming back. There's nothing worse than being an ex-missionary. One of the interesting things about celebrating 50 years is I've, I'm looking back to revive some of those earlier memories of South America. But I'm not, I don't think I'm talking about it all the time normally, but I've thought about it a lot now. When you came back? I was running the seminary of Holland, the former seminary, for 10 years or more, which was where I'd already spent 13 years. 
That was an irony, you know, to go back to that place. Presiding over its wind down, and we were trying to decide what to do with the building, a massive building in 200-odd acres of countryside. It was a nightmare. It was a listed building which you couldn't touch, and it was in Greenbelt. And it was a massive building, and it was too big for any other single use. We couldn't sell it because it was too big for anyone to buy it. And anyone buying it would inherit the same problems that we had, which were the reason why we were selling it. And it was a crash course in local politics, actually, for me. So what was transferable from that experience? I found that I got on better with people who didn't go to church than people who did. Let's put it that way. And this job came along working with government on behalf of all the mainstream Christian denominations. And it was just after 9-11. And so I was also involved with working with Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Jews, the whole gamut of other world faiths. Working with those people and having a desk alongside other government officials and that civil servants. I didn't dress as a priest, but they knew I I didn't pretend I wasn't a priest. And I found exposure to all those different sort of subcultures. I found that quite stimulating. And I did that for... 12 years. And it was interesting. You know, I had a management group when I was doing that ecumenical work. And the chair of the management group, he was, he was Baptist. And he said to me, because I must have articulated it often enough, that, I mean, I've heard it called loitering with intent, but it, it's, a, it's a ministry of presence, just being there, right? And being yourself where you are. And, and that in itself is, is kind of is sacramental as being a priest. I mean, I was very lucky. The the church of 50 years ago, Mm. the Roman Catholic Church Mm. of those times, was a church where the priests did everything. Mm. And you Mm. and I can both remember Mm. parishes where there were four and five priests in the one parish. But that's Mm. been a significant change, hasn't it? I can look forward to a church where there are fewer and fewer priests. I mean, a lot fewer than there are now. I can see that. And with laity taking responsibility... And I can see the situation we're in now, but how are we going to get from A to B is a mystery to me. Are you saying that we've got to be forced into a position of change rather than manage change? You can't anticipate change. It's very difficult. People don't listen. They can't accept it. You see, there are some things you can actually delegate, pass on, but the actual core stuff, the sacramental life of the church... Okay, deacons can do baptisms and weddings or even funerals to that extent, but they can't celebrate the Eucharist, which is the central thing. And I don't know how we're going to get over over that, but I think we're probably going to move to a different model of priesthood. I think it's sometimes difficult for me to separate priesthood and, and clericalism. We teach that priesthood is a sacrament. All the sacraments are a meeting with the person of Christ in one guise or another, whether it's in the form of bread and wine or water at baptism or or in marriage. You know, people find God in their love for each other. So the priesthood is manifesting Christ's presence in, in all sorts of ways. It's nothing to do with being perfect, but it's actually that, you know, that God loves us as we really are, not as we'd like to be or pretend to be. And, and, and that's OK. The message of the gospel seems to be the ones who think they're on the back foot are probably closer to, to the heart of, of Christ than those who think they're home and dry. People want to engage with the church, but they do it on different terms than the ones we grew up with. I mean, faith is a gift. It doesn't belong in the head. It belongs in the heart. I mean, faith is, is in some ways, it's a fragile thing, but it's also a powerful thing, an irrepressible thing.
Maybe the best thing that could happen would be for Christianity to be declared illegal. Then it would really flourish. That's well from what happens. When I was a young priest, I thought I knew what it was all about. And I was there to bring people up to scratch. And now, you know, I'm, I think if I'm going to get to heaven, it's in the slipstream of, you know, somebody else, the parishioners, really, because that's where the faith is embedded. I'm just a kind of hanger on, really. Musical Blessing from the Priests, and before that, Monsignor John Devine, Senior Roman Catholic Priest on the island and Parish Priest of the newly created Cathedral Church of St Mary of the Isle, was reflecting on his 50 years as a priest. And now it's notice board time, and today Union Mills Methodist Chapel have their harvest Thanksgiving. Their family service will be starting very shortly, but there's plenty of time to join them for the evening celebration tonight at half past six, when the preacher will be Reverend Dr Janet Corlett, and there'll be supper after the service, and everyone will be made most welcome. Also this evening, Sandygate Methodist Chapel have their harvest service at half past six. Bert Quayle will preach, the organist will be John Neal and the soloist Paul Costain. 
and Sandygate Chapel will remain open every afternoon this week, Monday to Friday, from 2 until 4pm, and you're invited to call in to share some tea and cake and enjoy the harvest flowers. There's no charge, but donations to chapel funds would be appreciated. On Thursday the 28th, it's tea at three at Balagheri Methodist Chapel. Afternoon tea in the Sun Lounge, served on Thursday afternoon from three o'clock. Suggested donation is £8 per person. No booking is necessary. Everyone is welcome. On Saturday the 30th, it's the very popular Harvest in the Barn at Glen May. It starts at half past six on Saturday evening and, as usual, will be held at Balacregan Farm in Glen May. There'll be traditional harvest hymns and readings with music led by Crosby Silver Band. The service will be led by Reverend Dr Janet Corlett and there'll be refreshments and an auction of produce afterwards. Proceeds from the auction will be split between the Isle of Man Food Bank and Glen May Chapel. Balacregan Farm is at the end of Sound Road in Glen May. Just go to the bottom of Glen May Hill and follow the signs to harvest in the barn. Everyone will be made most welcome. And that's all that we have time for now, but I'll be back later in our virtual lounge tonight at nine with a mix of easy listening music, your requests and your dedications. And I'd love you to join me if you can. So, till whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening and I wish you and those you love a blessed and peaceful week and a very good morning. Mm -hmm.